from 2 Timothy 1, verses 13 and 14. Hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus, that good thing which was committed to you keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. They do not care how much you know until they know how much you care. Let me say it again. They do not care how much you know until they know how much you care. I recently graduated from the University of Houston, and while I was there, I was going through a teaching program. And in the last class of that teaching program, as we're actually going into classrooms and actually teaching students, that was our mantra. Because they wanted us to know that there was, that we needed before we walked in that classroom to be prepared. We had to know why we were going to that classroom, why it was important for us to be there. We had to resolve how we were going to address and treat and teach those students. All before we ever even got to the classroom, all before we ever even touched on the material. Brothers and sisters, as Christians, we have important material today. Material that the world needs to know about. But just as important as the material that we need to be proclaiming to the world is why we are doing it and how we are doing it before we can see any of the result. We'll be spending most of our time today in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to look at a master teacher today, Paul, and see why did he preach and teach and how did he preach and teach and then finally what the result was. But before you're there, I'd ask that you instead turn to Acts chapter 17. Let's get some context before we step into our lesson. A lot of people are familiar with Acts chapter 16. Have you ever heard the story of the Philippian jailer? We know that one very well, but not a lot of people are familiar with Acts chapter 17 and the church at Thessalonica. Why? Often it's because it was such a short time that Paul was there. Let's begin reading. In verse 1, now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus who I preach to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and a great multitude of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. But the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathered a mob and set all the city in an uproar. 
and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. And then down in verse 8, And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they had arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Paul, whenever he reached Thessalonica, what was the first thing he did? Well, as was his custom, as he typically did, he went where he thought souls could be saved. He went to the synagogue. And he went there for three Sabbaths. Think about that. Less than a month, Paul was there, preaching, converting, teaching. And a new church was formed. And then after less than a month, the atmosphere has become so hostile, Paul has run out of town, and now this poor church is left in this very anti-Christian atmosphere. That is the reason for First and Second Thessalonians being written. Paul trying to encourage this young church in such a hostile atmosphere. And now let's turn over to First Thessalonians chapter 2 and see what he wrote to them. First Thessalonians chapter 2 beginning in verse 1. Paul would write to them and say, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated in Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. You see, after Paul was run out, after this young church was left alone without a preacher, people started coming in, and it appears from what Paul was writing that they started saying, you know this, Paul, really, he was just in it, well, for a lot of things. It sure seems like they were saying for the money. He was in here to speak deceitfully to you. He was covetous. You see, people understand motivation. People realize that nobody does something unless they have a reason. And so they attributed to Paul all the false and malicious reasoning that they could. They said he's in it for the money. He's in it for the glory of men. There is a lesson here in persecution, Matthew chapters 5, verse 11. Blessed are you when men speak falsely of you and say all manner of evil against you for my name's sake. People understand motivation, and Paul did have a motivation. They just attributed the wrong one to him. 
Elsewhere, Paul would say that preachers have the right to make gain by the word of God. 1 Corinthians chapters 9, verses 13 through 15. 2 Corinthians 11, verses 8 through 9. But here in 1 Thessalonians 2, 6, he said we could have made demands. I actually like the King James Version a little bit better than the New King James because he says we could have been burdensome to you. I could have obliged you to carry a weight, but coming into this young, this new congregation, he says we were not. That wasn't our motivation. What was our motivation? It was to preach the gospel to you in much labor and conflict, so much so that we would be thrown out. It was to look at people and say, these are souls that need the gospel of Christ. And so I want to preach to them. I'm thankful here that one of the things that we have at Graber is the compassion cards. It takes time to write them. It takes time to send them out. And yet, what do we get out of it? What do the people sitting down, the teams one through four, get out of it? We get nothing. What about the lunches we are encouraged to take people out to? What do we get out of that? Well, we get some good fellowship. But in terms of personal gain, we get nothing, and I love that. Because when someone stops and they actually think about it and they say, wow, that was a great lunch, or man, I can't believe I'm being just, I have this deluge of cards coming in. My mailbox is full. If they stop and they think about that, realizing that the people that are doing that personally gain nothing from it, there might be some consideration of, wow, these people really care. Wow, I feel so appreciated and so loved. When someone walks in these doors and they have five people falling over them to say, Hi, my name is Nathan. I'm so glad you could be here on this Sunday. I know you could be anywhere else. We get nothing out of that, but that can mean everything to them. Because people understand motivation, and our motivation is not for our personal gain, but it's to say, here's a soul that chose to be here. Let me encourage them to continue to come back. I'm reminded of a story of a youth summer series. It was just the elders and some young people at the building. The series was on proclaiming God's word. And into that building on a Wednesday night before services, there came a young man. He had very old clothes. They had dirt on them. He'd clearly been out working. His pants were torn. His shoes had holes in them. His hair was long and matted with sweat, greasy. Brethren, he stank. And he walked in, and as he walked around the auditorium, nobody said anything to him. Finally, he went to get a drink of water, and he sat down. He went to the front, sat down right at the very front. People kind of nodded their heads. This person looks like clearly he needs Jesus in his life. 
That's good, let him sit there. And then when it came time for the speaker to get up, this person raced up into the pulpit. Some of the bigger young men that were there started saying, what is he doing? We need to take him out of that pulpit. That was when that person took off their wig and revealed that he was the speaker that was there for that night. He was there to talk to them about saving souls and evangelism, about proclaiming the word of God. And what lesson did it teach them that they had all ignored him? Can you imagine how different it would have been if they'd been saying, I don't think I've met you before. Can I invite you out to lunch? Maybe tomorrow, maybe dinner tonight afterwards? We're so glad to have met you. We know you could be anywhere else. Brethren, if we see someone like this that's dressed up to the nines and we treat them any differently than the person that walks in these doors in holy shorts and a faded t-shirt, can we really say that we are seeking souls the same way Paul would have sought souls? with the same diligence that Paul would have sought them? Or maybe in expecting them to look like us, we are in fact being burdensome to them. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, God is preparing to appoint a man to lead his nation. An important position. And Samuel is looking to see, who is this young man? I know he's of the house of Jesse. And he sees the first young man and he says, oh, he is great. He is tall of stature. He looks good. And God, perhaps telling Samuel that he needs to think a little bit differently, says, chapter 16, verse 7 of 1 Samuel, he rebukes Samuel and says, do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. I don't want him for that job. Because the Lord does not see as a man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God sees souls, brethren. As you prepare yourself to teach a class, as you prepare yourself to lead a Bible study, as you prepare yourself to go out into the world and to deal with the people in your lives, remember why you do it. Because they are souls. They are souls that need salvation and God looks at them and he says, I want you, just the same way he looked at us and said, I want you. Back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, continuing in verse 7. But as we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children, so affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you were dear to us. 
we know how Acts 17 went, brethren. We know that in verse 10, Paul made it out. But when that mob was whipped up, Paul, Jason would have his house surrounded. Those people did not know how the story ended. And so when Paul says, I am willing to offer even my own life to you, these people knew it was true because Paul was willing to face down a mob. And so often we look at this and other great acts and we say, wow, you know, there were people that died that God's word might be proclaimed. How wonderful and faithful people they are. And brethren, they were faithful and that was great. But we also remember, or we should remember, some of the other teachings of Paul. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 13, when talking about meat offered to idols, Paul would say, you know, I am willing to abstain from meat for the rest of my life if it causes one of my brethren to stumble. Paul says here in verse 6, we were gentle with you as a nursing mother, as a mother and father would rearrange their life to accommodate that new child that's been born to them. So we were willing to change our lives, inconvenience ourselves for you. Paul would also write, In Philippians chapter 1, verse 20, we think about the people often that chose to sacrifice their lives, but how often do we think about those people like Paul did in chapter, sorry, in verse 10 of Acts 17, who chose to walk away, who chose not to die but to live. Philippians chapter 1, verse 20. According to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness, all boldness, even to the point of a mob and death, but with all that boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul says, I'm ready to go. I know where I'm going. Just hurry up and get there, right? But he goes on to continue. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean the fruit will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose I cannot tell, for I am hard pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better, and I'll just insert for me. Nevertheless, To remain in the flesh is more needful for you. We look at people that would sacrifice their lives and we say, how great, how wonderful. But brethren, let me tell you that it is also great and wonderful not to sacrifice your life to death, but to sacrifice your life while you are alive. To change the pattern of your life so that you might say, I have set myself in my time is devoted to winning souls for God. We all have things we'd rather do. I can tell you on a Saturday, I would rather be kicked back watching TV in my air-conditioned house. I'd rather be relaxing and resting. 
So what does it mean whenever we decide that we're going to sit down on that Saturday, that day of rest that we have, and I'm going to have a Bible study with someone? What does it mean when we say, you know, I'm going to go visit the shut-ins? What does it mean when we wake up every morning and when we could be still laying there sleeping, we say, I resolve to wake up every morning, to open up my Bible and to study so that if there are any questions in my life, I might be ready always to give an answer for the hope that is in me. It's a changing of lifestyle. It's resolving to inconvenience yourself so that you might be better blessed in spiritual things, so that you might better help and bless others. You can sacrifice your life for God's kingdom. You can truthfully say, I am crucified in Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. When you dedicate your time and your effort to preparing yourself to go out and seek souls, when you dedicate your time to actually going and seeking those souls, when you step up and teach a Bible class, when you decide to lead singing, young people, when you take a friend out from school that you know has been struggling and you say, hey, let's go and have dinner together. I know it's been rough, let's talk. Older people, but still young at heart, when you determine I'm going to be a mentor to someone, a young person that I see struggling. You are living for Christ. And just as Paul would write to the church at Thessalonica, we were affectionately longing for you. The King James says affectionately desirous for you. We desired what was best for you, and you saw it in the way that we lived our life, and we, we choose to spend our time. For Paul was there at Thessalonica. For us here at Graber Road, it's as soon as we walk out these doors. How do you choose to live your life when it comes to preparing yourself to teach others? The last part. Beginning in verse 9, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. For remember, brethren, our labor and toil, for laboring night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you, we preached to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses. And God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. As you know how we exhorted and comforted, and charged every one of you as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Paul and Silas were driven out of Thessalonica after being there for less than a month. But while they were there, for those three Sabbaths, and I'm certain every day in between, Paul was there boldly, publicly proclaiming the word of God. 
Now, brethren, we think today in 2021 when our coworkers, when our neighbors say, I don't want to hear it, when our family members say, don't you be talking to me about that Jesus? Because we tell them that there's a God that loves them and he loves you so much. He wants what's best for you, even when that means changing your own life. I've never been chased out of town by a mob. Paul dealt with the exact same and probably worse persecution than we ever will today. Not because of vainglory, as he was accused, not because of personal gain, but because he loved souls. Paul would go out and in public, even though it was not popular, he would proclaim the word of God. And there is a very important thing about this being a public discourse. Because when it is a public discourse, there are witnesses. That's how Paul can write in here. You know, brethren, why? Because you were there and you saw it. Now, if Paul had been mean-spirited, if he had been crude, if he had been ugly, if he'd wanted to start a fight with someone if he'd been pedantic enough just to want to win because it's all about winning that argument, people would have seen that. And when Paul wrote to them and said, I was desirous of you as a father was, I cared about you like a parent, they would have said, no, you didn't. You just wanted to prove your point. Paul publicly proclaimed the word of God, and so there were witnesses to how he behaved when he proclaimed it. Paul can say to them, I did nothing wrong and you know it and you are witnesses just as much as God is a witness. See, brother, whenever you do things in public, whenever you publicly proclaim God's word, those people that would say they do this for personal gain, they do this because they want us there filling the collection on Sundays, What did you, their friend, have to gain from that? Certainly not the collection on Sundays. How did you proclaim the word to them? I would hope with love and sincerity, affectionately being desirous for them, wanting the best for them. So then you can say, you know that's not right. You know I didn't proclaim the gospel that way to you. Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16. In his Sermon on the Mount, Christ would charge all of his people, telling them, You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand that it might give light to the whole house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. And glorify your Father that is in heaven. Brethren, when we proclaim God's word for the right reasons, publicly, boldly, it might lead to rejection. It did for Paul. But it might also lead to the greatest prize of all. When Paul wrote that letter to the Thessalonians, 
before he wrote chapter 2, he wrote chapter 1. And he would say to them in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, this was the fruit of all that work. Paul determining to preach to save souls. Paul determining to reach out to these people in love. You became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word, and we know this is true in much affliction, with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all that live in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. For, you, for from you the word of the Lord was sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith towards God has gone out so, you, so that we do not need to even say anything. Brethren, we have a chance to be a light in this world. And that light has the chance to beget more light. If we can be examples in our conduct, so then we can encourage others to follow. You can believe that when Paul was there in that synagogue, they were watching him, his detractors, waiting for him to slip up. And I'll also bet, given that they went to the trouble of whipping up a mob against him, they were watching him in private too. When your private and your public life can serve as this example, we have a chance to save souls and to lead others, not just to point them towards Christ, to offer them the example of our conduct, to offer them the example of the conduct of Paul and all the other people from this book, and to say, you've seen it in me too. I'm not asking you to do anything special. Just go out there and do what you see written here. I'd like to end with two thoughts. Very often, those who appear as us, we might reject. We already touched on that. But what about those whose lifestyle is different from ours? What about those that are, to use an old-time word, honorary? Those people it's just plain hard to get to know. Thinking about the kind of people that God wants Paul would write to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Brethren, when we tell people God loves you so much he wants you to change, that's not us saying this is my standard. That's God's standard. And we have to proclaim that boldly and loudly. But so often it seems I know that I run the risk of this. I stop reading there. And I say, you know what? God doesn't want you. When really, it continues in verse 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. God wants them just as much as he wants us, no matter their lifestyle, no matter their behavior. 
And brethren, anyone that walks through these doors, especially we ought to jump on because they made a choice to be here. Regardless of how they look, regardless of what they tell you about their lifestyle, that's a soul that can be reached out to. Christ himself would say in Luke chapter 15, verses 8 through 10, the parable of the lost coin, he would say, Or what woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls her friends and her neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. Likewise, I say to you, bold and underline this, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. There is great joy in heaven when a soul is one for God. And so I say to you, those who have been entrusted with this greatest message that the world needs so desperately to hear, I say to you, they do not care how much you know until they know how much you care. Is your life right with God? Do you have the why correct in your life? Not just to go out and win souls, but in your own personal, your own private life, so that if someone was to shine a microscope on that, and look at you privately, they would say they're just exactly who they present themselves to be in public. Have you been washed by the blood of the Lamb? Christ would say, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. There is no way to the Father but by me. There is only Christ's blood. Have you taken it on today? Is everything correct in your life if you are a Christian? Have you stumbled? Have you fallen? Every one of us here has a soul, and God says, I love you and I want you. And so I say, if you have any need, if we can encourage you, if you've been thinking about baptism, if you want prayers, if we can do anything for you, please come forward while we stand and while we sing.